There we are. Okay. Well, welcome to Net Squared, where we will not be talking about Nagumusu, um, the crazy Korean podcasting sensation. Um, what we will be talking about is COINTELNOW. COINTELNOW was a um, security curricula that um, I was a consultant on the development of, on the technical side, for um, an organization that was called Third World Majority. Third World Majority was a digital storytelling nonprofit out of the Bay Area, um, which is no longer in existence. Yeah, they closed their door. They were um, um, subsumed into um, the Center for Media Justice, is oh, okay. I believe who took that over. So they closed shop uh, shortly after this, like 2009 or something, 2008 maybe. Um, Part of the reason why the curriculum was developed was uh, it was part of a comprehensive training put together for the folks at the School of the Americas Watch before an action. So every year, SOA Watch now um, used to lock down the School of the Americas, which then changed its name to the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security and Cooperation or something like that, WINSEC in Fort Benning, Georgia. Um, the training was originally six hours in length. Um, the um, training began with a history of surveillance because I think it's one of those one of those things where context means everything. Um, so we covered surveillance, infiltration, psychological warfare, internal, psychological warfare, external. And I, I think that as as we're looking at the media landscape today, particularly within the nonprofit sector, we kind of start to like see those those spaces become a lot more clear in terms of. Um, like let's say messaging that goes out about activities, about organizations, et cetera, and who controls those messages. Um, we also talked a lot about legal measures in the curricula, like kind of like um, no loitering ordinances and that type of stuff that Im impacts operational security. When, when the training was delivered in um, 2006, um, we didn't call it counterinsurgency at that point because um, I think that there was the expectation that um, the Bush administration um, and kind of the, the militarization of the police wouldn't last as long as it did. Like, I guess the expectation was there would be a um, regime change in this country and that that would kind of reduce the amount of um, counterinsurgency tactics that are currently being used against activists. We were very, very wrong <laughs> in that optimism. So we went through case studies about CISPES, uh, the, um, which was a solidarity organization with the people of El Salvador, the Black Panther Party, and the Sanctuary Movement in the 1980s. Why these all had a technical connection was because in all the disruptions that were targeted against those movements in those case studies, um, technologies, particularly more simple technologies like telephone, like misinformation, played a huge role in, in the disruption um, of the activities of those, of those organizations. Um, at that point, we were still trying to get used to the whole um, aspect of the war on, on terror. I think when we delivered the, the initial training, um, we were just becoming familiar with um, the AT&T closet in San Francisco, where an AT&T tech followed a cable into a room and that room belonged to the NSA and all, all the traffic was being routed into that room. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, um, under the Bush administrations and under the Obama administration, uh, it's really being normalized where now we have drones <laughs> flying over um, civilian populations and being used to watch people. And of course, all these, all these are nothing more than deployments of technologies to accomplish a, a goal of the state. Um, when, when, once again, since this was a six hour training, this is a really, short synopsis, but you know, when I thought it was worthwhile to point out some of the practical pre-action steps and considerations, because in reviewing the curricula, it became really clear that um, many of the aspects were non-technical. There's just so much of this that relies on, um, on systems, on practices that don't require a computer, a smartphone, or even a traditional telephone. So some of those were the participation of people in the actions, being aware of what the consequences were, buddy systems, documentation, being weary of, e weary of eavesdroppers, um, having the minimal amount of information on you, and knowing what, what to expect in terms of legal support and what the arrest plan is. 
it's actually quite interesting how many of those considerations that I just read off actually do have like their, their own kind of like technological twin where in, in system design, we want to make sure that we understand what the consequences are of using a certain system. For example, with proprietary software, we want to make sure that we can um, encumber the cost of license renewal, et cetera, or subscriptions for like hosted software. Buddy systems, we ideally would like a, a user community around it. Documentation, we want to make sure that we're capturing the knowledge that we're building in the deployment of tools. Eavesdroppers, we want to make sure that systems are built with only the right amount of access into them, so ideally a secure system. Empty your phone and carry minimal records for an action, kind of operationally in a technology environment. That kind of turns out to be, you know what? Only collect and uh, have the information that you need accessible. And it's interesting because in, in the legal services community, there's a huge discussion of what type of records do you want? Because in a state like California, where like, let's say we to have a database breach, we would have to balance whether or not we're bound by <clears throat> the California state privacy regulations because we've made it a practice to only collect the minimal information. So we don't require social security numbers, we collect some elements, not others, so that we, we kind of know, you know what, in the event of, a, of, a, um, of an incident, um, we've reduced our liability in as much as possible. What does legal support look like? You know, at the, at the technical end, it's kind of like just generally what does support look like? And what's the arrest plan? That's kind of on the tech front, kind of turns out to be in what's, uh, what's your disaster recovery plan, what type of redundant systems are built in, and when shit goes wrong, do you actually have a plan? Um, within the training, once again, this is a training for organizers, um, we tried to be very clear about how whatever systems they were going to be using in 2006, um, most of the systems are going to be inherently tampered with. I mean, even in a room like this where we could play telephone and we know how that goes, where by the end, either out of just carelessness, um, poor memory or just human fallibility or malice, the message could change as it gets transferred from endpoint to endpoint. So um, kind of an assessment of what methods of communication are we using and um, who are the unknown individuals and who knows what but it's one of those like basic considerations. Um, yep. On the earlier slide, um, you were comparing. Um, uh, you want me to go over one more? Action, direct action security with technology security. Correct. And like drawing the, the parallel is like really similar. So, um, just, just making sure that I understood that. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, just something, that's, that's just something that's interesting, right? But, but it's not, um, how does it relate? I, I see what you're pointing there aren't, there aren't exact parallels, but I think that there are some parallels in terms of system design. Right. So as, as we're designing systems, it could be like for a direct action, having, um, having coordinated direct actions um, myself. Um, I think that a lot of it is, there's security in predictability. And, and kind of translating some of those steps which we put together in a direct action context into a, an information technology or a systems design kind of paradigm, um, I think would be a useful consideration, potentially a useful consideration. Like mutual, mutual learning or something, share tips? Yeah, kind of like a, a, a crossover where we see parallels, where there, not, there aren't exact mm -hmm. matches for many of these things, but there are certain parallels. Yeah. Is that helpful? Yeah. Cool. Um, one of the pieces that we did for the training, so once again, this is like a six-hour training, really condensed, um, is we approached it also through a media justice frame of, and it's, it's interesting how we were talking about storytelling and radio and video and how people are using that um, before we actually started this, this evening's session. But, we actually did a lot of that because that was the whole focus of Third World Majority. They were a digital storytelling nonprofit. Um, so the importance of people sharing their stories, the documentation, kind of making sure that it wasn't evidence. So what's happened a lot, and particularly like 
from, from the Lawyers Guild side, that's always been kind of one of those, those balances. When you have people with a camera, you want to make sure that whatever footage exists at an action, it, doesn't, it can't be flipped around and be used to prosecute someone participating in the action. Because that happened in uh, Florida with uh, the FTAA protests, Miami, where some of the footage, the cops used it as, oh, hey, look, now we need to find out who that person was throwing that. I think it was like a brick or a bottle or something. And that was because it was submitted as evidence of police misconduct. And in the background, there was someone engaged in, in an activity that was potentially illegal. Um, the, agree the understanding that some folks are not comfortable being documented, which, you know, is kind of, it is what it is. Some folks will not want to be on camera. And um, the consideration of, um, to capture these stories, it kind of requires people to be brave, but it also requires people to be prudent and not putting themselves in, in harm's way. Um, and these are like the practical considerations of power, familiarization with equipment. It was really quite interesting that at least a couple of folks at the training, which was maybe two days before the action at the School of the Americas, um, had like bought new, new cameras and stuff. And they, they really were just getting used to like, oh, okay, I don't know how long my battery's gonna be good for. I think I have a memory card, that type of thing. Actually, at that point, there's still like a lot of like 35 millimeter cameras or film that people are using, lighting, footage, et cetera. And, and one of the things was uh, the digital assets, like it's a film, so video footage, pictures, et cetera. There's usually like a lot of confusion as to who owns what or where stuff goes. It's like, let's say at an event, sometimes a lot of people didn't know who had what or who was where when footage was shot. For the operational security, we, through that section, we went through basic stuff like, do people have an office? A lot of the organizations that were at that training were faith-based organizations where they would have like a church office. And we would like go through this, like actually we had this, I think it was flushed out a lot more than that questionnaire of asking like who has access to the office and access to files, physical and digital, what the what other like physical countermeasures were in place, like locks, alarms, whether some of these files were unique in nature. Um, and you know, where is stuff backed up? And then that was like digital backups and, and physical backups as well. And kind of having people identify when their office is empty or unguarded or like, let's say, oh, you know, we only have a volunteer there who's there during lunch and that type of thing. And so, and one of the things that a lot of folks at the training would assert is, oh, I know my email's being tampered with or my phone had this issue, et cetera. And so we, we asked them to create incident logs that if they did believe they had an email issue, that they should capture like their name, their date, their time of issue, uh, um, the email address that they were using, email addresses, so the sender and the receiver, um, what the issue was, and you know, ask around if anybody in the office had the same issue. Because at, at that point in time, it was still like this, like we assume it's probably happening, but we don't really know. And at that point in 2006, I think we're still getting used to the, the landscape where, um, where Kalia, where, where, um, where, where it was kind of like, okay, the ISPs are in collusion with the government to, to surveil people. Um, call irregularities was one that a lot of people would say like, oh, my cell phone like dropped a call, et cetera. I must be surveilled. And so um, we pretty much had a, a mirror image of the call of a um, incident log for that, where we tried to have people identify like what was this irregular? Did it only happen with certain callers? Because I think for like at least some people, I think we came to the conclusion that it was really a matter of um, nothing more than them having like really shitty phone service. Um, and not kind of, probably not um, the government, so to speak. Um, throughout the curriculum as well, one of the things in terms of like monitoring volunteers, et cetera, we, we kind of, at this point, and at that point we didn't call it social engineering. I forget what term we used in like 2006, 
but um, but pretty much nowadays, the more accurate term would be social engineering. And it was like getting an idea of who has access to what, um, identifying and calling people out if they were in a restricted area, which I think is just an awkward thing in movement spaces. Because like even here at the legal center, where you know we have pretty good physical security, um, sometimes there'll be someone wandering around because our building is kind of, the office space upstairs is built like a maze. So sometimes people will be wandering around and no one says anything. That's like, we're kind of not so vigilant about that here. Um, and so particularly for, for people who are engaged in uh, more direct action, kind of the liability that could, could exist with repair pe people who appear to be repair folks, firefighters, building inspectors, and naturally the cops, where you don't want the cops in, in those spaces if there's stuff you're trying to protect. Um, the volunteers and the need to know information practices kind of go back to an earlier slide where the consideration is like, okay, so who needs to know what and are, do people know what they need to know and not really more than that, which is I think a tension in a lot of like um, self-identified radical movement spaces where the idea is to have a really open um, sharing of information, um, but just one of those things in, in to hold in balance. There's an interesting anecdote that after that training, about a year after that training, where at a, a large national immigrant rights organization, um, someone, <laughs> their, their IT person told me, yeah, we actually had uh, a lot of, um, we had some files that were, um, maybe not just positive, but very important for a matter they were litigating, um, disclosed to the opposing party by a temp. They had hired a temp for six months, and the temp might have not been placed intentionally, but the temp had anti-immigrant sympathies or beliefs, and the temp you know, gave, found out who the opposing party was and shared some wow. um, confidential information with the opposing party. So, so it's not just volunteers, it could be temp staff as well. Um, and sensitive information in the safest location possible, even if that's outside your office. Um, I think a lot of folks tended to believe, and, and I think we still kind of believe, that the safest space is the office, where actually if, if there is stuff we're trying to protect, um, we tend to be very lazy and we leave stuff in in the space where we're accessing the most, and that space is usually, um, could be construed as a very good target. Um, risk assessment, the reminder to folks during that training that it's, it's really a balancing act, and at the end of the day, um, that being secure is nothing more than assessing and managing risk. It's never the elimination of risk, because I think that a lot of, a lot of people kind of approach um, information security, well, any type of security, any type of security, as kind of a finite like destination or a goal, like we're there, we're done, we never have to revisit this. While in, in really operationally, it's, it's nothing more than a balancing act. Um, and a reminder to the organizers that being secure doesn't mean you can't take it to the streets, that, that at the end of the day, that the reason that these discussions about security exist and happen is so that that work can continue. Um, with that curriculum, we actually had a lot of um, information that, looking at it now, is so antiquated. Like the environment in 2006, we actually had, and I never had an account, but we had references to MySpace. <laughs> like, like, so organizing in a direct action doesn't mean like posting it on MySpace and saying like, call this number for more information for a direct action, et cetera. Um, that was the other stuff that MySpace was apparently good for. <laughs> um, and that's that slide bucket. Let me uh, go to this one here. Is, are you going to talk about public meetings? Because I've, I've been in meetings where people have said, um, if there's an undercover policeman here, please speak up now. And if you don't, you're breaking the law. Is that, is that real? So it's, it's actually, it's, it's kind of interesting. and. and Let's talk about that after, like we go through. Okay. Let's go through this one. I this is, no, actually, it, it does fit within like that high-level discussion of like what do people do about that. And to answer that, I'll share an anecdote about the Immigration Advocates Network. Okay. But um, so it's funny because like a postmortem on that is 
now having done um, with the Guild, a human rights delegation to Mexico, um, having helped out the Hondurans in like their post-coup work, and, and actually currently working on a, on a project that is against LAPD surveillance, and kind of in my own professional development as a technologist, I'm like, wow, so what is like COINTELNOW, that was like, okay, that was 2006, that was great, we did it, we wrapped it up, but what are like, where are we now? And so now, from 2006 to now, we're really in a very different security landscape than 2006. I think that uh, surveillance has been commodified and normalized. We're kind of used to it. We're like in this very, uh, um, well, government has willing partners in corporations and even in individuals making that panopticon a reality. We kind of live in like this world of, of Facebook. And, and the, the panopticon is this uh, Jeremy Bentham thought like, oh, like what would be the best prison? The best, most effective prison in like his mind, like a very utilitarian prison, was a prison that faces inward, where the inmates all monitor themselves. So there's really no privacy. You reduce the number of guards because everybody can see everybody else, um, sees everything. Um, and we're kind of living in that transparent world. And, and of course, like it begs questions as to what does transparency mean, particularly within like a movement environment, when we're thinking about having conversations about social change, where sometimes we have more information through Facebook about you know, that person we met once at a dinner than we do about our elected officials and where their contributions come from, et cetera. It's like that whole analysis of what does this like highly surveilled environment or highly transparent environment, using that word very loosely, what does it mean in terms of, in terms of security and particularly in terms of like movement building um, security? Um, the normalization and the, um, the codifying of, of surveillance is we've seen with um, the current administration, really none of the repeals that were expected of um, national security um, letters and other mandates. Um, we haven't seen a curtailment or a rescission of um, the Patriot Act. We haven't seen anything that kind of means the government can watch us less. On the other hand, we have a government that um, can now um, kill citizens, and with the ejection of Occupy, which is interesting, anecdotally, like in LA, having been in the park during the, um, during the arrest of the occupiers, it was really interesting to try to live tweet it, where from having 3G coverage about an hour earlier, for some reason, it was dropping down to GPRS. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's odd. Is it T-Mobile? Is it the government? I really don't know. And I don't know, like at this point, I'm not gonna say it was the government, but it's just really odd that um, there, there are multiple rumors in multiple cities that there was some type of interference with communication, particularly for the ejectments of the occupies. Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of like standard, standard practice, it seems. Well, um, the BART did that, right? Yeah, the BART did that, and the post officer Grant shootings. Uh, yeah. Yeah, which I mean is, is kind of interesting to, to think about how even, even though they said like, okay, now we're gonna establish a process to it, there's already that bite has been affected where potentially it curtailed um, people taking action. So the damage was already done. Yeah. What, what was the post office? The what? Post office? No, the bar. Huh? Bar? Oh, yeah, I heard about the bar one, they, where they sh shut off the cell phone company. Yeah. Did you say also post office? No. Okay. All right. So, but, and so at the end of the day, the security landscape hasn't changed all that much because the um, equation that kind of governs is you're trying to make sure that you can do your work effectively without outside interference. And, and within that landscape, I think that there's always the, the risk or the tension that when we're having conversations about security, that we kind of start to become suspicious of everybody in the room. And, and I don't know, in, in, in my years, that like started with anti-Prop 187 work, 95, um, like I've come to the conclusion that most people do want a more just world and most people want to help us like build that world. And so it comes down to being in a balancing act where what always needs to win out or we have to like kind of favor is a culture of movement building and or cooperation. And, and to kind of 
tangent on that a little bit, like one of the things that like Young Ho was saying, like kind of so from even in terms of design philosophies for here at the legal center, all our technologies, we've like philosophically have made the decision and fortunately management has supported my decision that we try to make sure everything that staff have at the office, they can access remotely. So we create like a very device agnostic, location agnostic um, way because the goal is to have people cooperate on what they're doing. And if people aren't connected to a network, that cooperation is um, almost nullified. And so tools, I decided to put together a couple of like baseline and expensive tools that don't really have a steep learning curve. Um, Cause I figured people would want to leave a session like this with some type of like, oh, that's what some people are doing. And so like in terms of connectivity, I think that's one of the things that goes, almost goes without saying, but I'll, I'll be overbearing and say it anyhow, where most of the work that people do now is connected to, re relies on a connection to, their, to the internet. Um, particularly in terms of like movement building, people need to connect to do a Facebook update, to tweet, to do something. So there's like a there's a really good free VPN tool put out by the folks at RiseUp.net, and it uses um, OpenVPN, and they have a really slick installer that does it. And once again, it's free. So I'm a big fan of that. So a lot of people generally don't use a VPN tool because they're like, oh, it's so complicated. I'd have to install it, and it's so expensive. We use a proprietary VPN here at APAL, so we don't use this tool. I use this tool for like any type of connection where it's an untrusted network. Another thing that some people do that I'm a big fan of is SSL Everywhere. So there's a Firefox plugin and there's also a Chrome extension that whenever, wherever you go to your website, it initially tries to make the connection over secure sockets layer. There are some issues with an SSL connection, but generally speaking, it kind of ensures at both endpoints that it decreases the likelihood of the um, traffic traveling between both endpoints is interrupted. So I'm a big fan of that. Um, Tor is a little bit more complicated. Um, Tor is an onion router. It's a project that was put out by um, the Electronic Frontier Foundation um, more than a decade ago. It came out of a naval research lab, if I recall correctly. And so what it does is it's, it's an onion router. So like an onion, an onion has multiple layers and your data travels along multiple networks, and then there are exit nodes in a Tor, architecturally in Tor, there are exit nodes. So your data, this packet pops out um, in the Netherlands, this other set of packets pops out at APOC because we run a Tor router here, and then another set of packets pops out like at my desktop computer when I'm connected to my home network. So what that does, it's kind of like data whack-a-mole where there's like plausible deniability about what you're doing. Um, so, and, and, and I think one of the, one of the things that I should have add, added to the slide bucket, um, which I will add is kind of some of the tools that the Electronic Frontier Foundation has some really good, um, boilerplate language and letters. So if like, let's say your ISP, so if AT&T comes to you and is like, Hey, we've seen suspicious traffic on you, blah, 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 popping out of your IP address, you could kind of send them the boilerplate letters that they have at EFF and they'll back off. Um, for equipment security and uh, yeah sometimes you just got to know where your stuff is and be able to wipe it so like let's say for notebook computers and and it's so and prey has a, a product that's um, it's open source it runs on pretty much every operating system that's out there um, Macs Windows and various flavors and even on Linux um, so what it does is it lets you connect to your computer remotely. If it has a webcam, you can like take a, sh uh, a shot of the webcam. You can get a screen capture, et cetera, remotely. And there's a really good um, anecdote where someone used, I believe it was Prey and Storyfy to kind of recover their computer. I'll dig that up. It's actually a really entertaining anecdote because the person was able to recover their stolen laptop um, by oh. the use of Prey. Oh, with the guy who stole it was on the website. Yeah, exactly. Oh, he wasn't even aware. He wasn't even aware, oh, yeah. yeah I that. So um, there are tools out there where if you're going to be using your devices some other place and that device is susceptible to loss, then you might as well install something like Prey. The um, suggestion for like, let's say for APOC staff, 
um, is that we went with the mobile devices they use, BlackBerry, iPhone, and Android, they all have remote wipe tools. So like, let's say there's BlackBerry Protect for, for the BlackBerry, there's Android Lost and Prey for, um, for Android phones, and the iPhone has like another like tool that I think is out by Apple, where you can remotely wipe your phone if you find lose my, it. Find my iPhone or something. Find my find my iPhone or iPad. Okay, so there there are tools that do that. So like maybe one of those that's one of those things that even if we're not doing um, or we don't see ourselves doing like very confidential or. Um, um, activities that require a high degree of security, I think it's just best practice to be able to wipe your stuff remotely in case it is stolen or lost. And, and I think one of the things that kind of is obvious that I really missed on this slide is um, having your computer lock you out after a little while if you leave it unattended or whenever it wakes from sleep is always never gonna hurt you. And it only takes you two minutes, or less than two minutes, it takes seconds to unlock your machine. Um, for voice communication, I think this is an area where a lot of a lot of activists, you know, will say like, "Oh, I had a bad connection; it meant the cops were listening to me." More often than not, I'm very skeptical about that because I think that the technologies that are out there um, are so good at this point that it it doesn't appear that it's like the old days where someone takes a pair of alligator clips and you hear them fumbling like on a phone block and they're listening with like some ancient headphones. Um, things are, the phone system is sophistic, sophisticated nowadays and the switches like are kind of built to be monitored. So there, there's, um, I think this is a situation, voice communication is a situation that lends itself to more new technologies where, you know, I have my issues with Skype. Skype's a Microsoft product. The encryption algorithm they use on it, they don't publicize what it is. Um, but on the plus side, there's some degree of encryption. So I would say something, even if you don't know what it is, might be better than just a naked conversation. Um, a SIP phone, there's a great tool called Z-Phone, which was put out by Phil Zimmerman, who is the father of, of, of GPG, uh, or PGP, Pretty Good Privacy, uh, which is an encryption tool. Um, SIP phones are really solid nowadays. Um, and SIP is a session initiation protocol. It's pretty much just an internet phone. Um, Google Talk. Google Talk's an interesting uh, tool because it would be interesting to, to do um, packet capture with something like Wireshark, so like a, a um, data packet analysis tool, to kind of see like, what if you have half of your conversations in chat and half of them in voice? It's like, how would, how would the capture and the deciphering of that happen? Because it would take two very different tools potentially to do that. Um, and and it, it's really funny. So in, in some of the direct actions that I've seen, I, I've seen some people really obsess about using code words, which, which I think is kind of funny. Because like for me, I'm like, whoa, if I were eavesdropping and someone was using like baby cakes or something, like, yes, are we going to do baby cakes tomorrow? I'd be like, wow, either that's really perverse or something's amiss. So I'm not a big fan of that. I'm, I'm a bigger fan of kind of being vigilant about the technologies that we use and, and the, or the modalities that we use rather than like trying to like duct tape these like, we will call this MacBook Pro is our action and it's going down tomorrow at the federal building. Uh, I, think like, I, I think that there, there are better ways to handle that and, and code words are definitely not one of them. Um, email. So I'm a big fan, and, and in full disclosure, here at APOC, we were one of the um, first three legal services, legal aid organizations in the country to go to Google Apps um, many, many years ago. Um, and we're kind of comfortable with the terms of service that we have from Google. People kind of doing more, um, more radical work or work that could uh, entail some type of liability for their actions should probably reconsider. I mean, I use, I use a Gmail account for like my personal domain, but I have a riseup.net account that has pretty solid email and fosters good email practices. One of the good things about riseup is that riseup doesn't have this, they don't, they're volunteer run 
and it's always good to kick them down some money as a donation. Um, but they kind of enforce a quota. One of the nice things about a quota is that a quota is kind of like uh, email policy without you having to like be the IT manager who's like, get rid of your stuff older than 90 days. We're kind of with a quota that kind of happens automatically if people have a limited amount of space. The other thing is that RiseUp is very security conscious. So that's one of their things why, why they have the VPN tool, et cetera, is they kind of want, they know their user base is, are the type of folks who are generally um, going to be engaged in some type of activist activity. And so I think they have a really good email um, account practice. Um, NewPG is uh, the open source version of pretty good privacy, and it's a key signing encryption tool for email. So what that means is um, we, for a short while, used it here at APALC. That was a big failure because um, people would create their key, they'd create a pass phrase, it encrypts something, then they'd forget their key, and it'd be like, dude, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is like the no risk, there's no risk, there's no real reset button here. It's you created something to protect something, and you lost the key, and we're not going to invest the resources to try to break into it. So that was a huge failure here. Um, because it takes, it's a lot more user intensive. So I, I don't, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about that. But if you're using something like Thunderbird um, or even Microsoft Outlook, it's an excellent plugin to have, particularly if you're committed to using like a desktop mail client. Though the next bullet point says, don't use a desktop email client for important mail if you're not encrypting. Because that's the other thing is like, let's say, you know, even with a, with a Mac, uh, unless it's an encrypted partition, um, or, or, your, or your home directory is encrypted on a Mac, like really, just put in an OS 10 boot CD, boot from that CD, reset the, pass, the, the admin password, they don't call it the root password, but the since it's BSD, the equivalent to the root password, and you're into the machine. With Windows machines, boot off a CD. So if the machine is physically compromised, Nothing on that's really safe unless you've taken additional steps. Okay. Yep. Um, if you don't mind, maybe talk a little, a little bit about how did APAL decide to go between applying email to Gmail? Was it a very like logical say like you just Google email? Was there any resistance to this is on the cloud? This is out there. It's Google. I mean, was was there any conversations around that? You know, it's really funny. That's actually like, that could be its own session, but the short version of the transition or a migration plan was um, I was tired of administering SendMail. So I was like, you know what? I'm done with SendMail. I'm done with managing these quotas. Um, we're not getting increased functionality. We're not getting collaborative functionalities. And we needed, we've been a growing organization. We're still kind of growing. Um, and having conversations with the folks at Legal Services of Northern California, um, Legal Services of Western New York, who they're like, we're gonna pull the plug on it and we're just gonna move forward. And they did their due diligence. We kind of relied on their due diligence and did a little investigation ourselves. And so when the time came, um, we had about a two month migration window where staff were informed like, hey, as of this date, your Outlook, no new mail is gonna be coming into your Outlook. You're gonna be using a web browser. And um, yeah, we did a migrate. Everyone was doing, so SendMail was set up for IMAP. So they're good migration tools in the, in the Gmail administrator by kind of interface or tool set that we just did migrations and all the folders in their IMAP stores became labels. And so people were like, okay, so now I just have like cooler webmail. And so, um, and on the day that we cut over, I expected there to be a lot more um, gnashing of teeth and like forks, uh, pitchforks and torches at my cubicle. But there weren't. Everyone was kind of like, oh, okay, we'll live with it. And, and folks did. And it also helped that I disappeared for about two months to study for the bar. Because <laughs> the first time I sat for the bar when, when we did the migration, so I kind of built it in. So I was like, okay, everything's going to be working and then I'm going to disappear so that we can't go back. Um, so yeah, it wasn't that bad. It was a relatively easy process. Um, and stepping back even further, where the best security practices in the world really aren't going to help you if you don't do basic stuff like password protect your computer, patch your computer, which I know for some people is really a pain, but really that's, 
most of the vulnerabilities that you see that, that kind of lead to a computer being compromised are stuff that people could have patched. Um, so like let's say with Apple, there's a software update tool. Like making sure that runs on a usual basis and making sure that you don't click ignore or cancel. Oh, update, okay. Yeah. And then like let's say Windows is Windows update. Which is nice on the newer versions of Windows. It's almost like when you reboot your machine, those patches will be installed. Um, running an antivirus application on the Mac, there's a great free solution from Sophos, which is uh, antivirus for the Mac. And here at the Legal Center for Windows, we're a Sophos shop, where Sophos is kind of a little bit more expensive. And it, they don't sell to consumers, which kind of sucks. They only sell to institutions like schools and businesses. Um, but their stuff is really solid. But for Windows, even running something like an AVG or a Microsoft Security Essentials will protect you from most known threats. Um, connecting to insecure networks, this kind of goes hand in hand with the VPN, where you really want to be on an insecure network as, for as little as possible. Um, don't use USB devices. You know, we're at this point where almost everywhere you go, you have internet access you don't really need a USB device. Worst case scenario, I'm a bigger fan of Bluetooth transferring of files than people plugging in a USB stick. You never know where they are. People always lose them. Um, they're just like a litany of stories on like the register. Uh, and I, it's, the register is like this IT news site um, of like particularly in Britain apparently, like people have lost so much data on USB sticks at like random places like discos, like the Ministry of Defense. Like, oh, like this whole database is backed up to a USB stick and someone lost it in a nightclub. So, so I'm, I'm like an enemy of USB devices. Um, and for the hardcore, you know, encrypt your computer. Fortunately, there are really easy to use tools out there now. Um, TrueCrypt, there's like Windows has its own version, which I forget the name of it. But there are the tools are out there to do that. Um, and, Mm-hmm. But it's like the main Wi-Fi for the airport. You know, you can't, I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, no, I think that's one of those balancing acts where you're like, okay, I want internet access, but once you're on that network, it's kind of let me VPN into another network as soon as possible is, is how I would treat that. And the other option is that if internet's so important, um, like here at APOC, we're lucky that we have a couple of um, wireless access points. So... Um, kind of mobile Wi-Fi that we check out, that we have, like in inventory. So we have one for the admin team, we have one for our direct services unit, because they go out and they do clinics, and we pretty much bring our own Wi-Fi. And then when people need to connect to the case management system, they VPN to the, to, they VPN from wherever they are to this office, and then they access the case management system that way. Um, for the average consumer, I think like the rise of VPN would probably effectively knock you off that insecure network because most of your traffic is going to be not just how do I get out it's gonna be like I know how I get out this is my highway out I'm not going to send other stuff around this network to f try to find a way out onto the internet um, yeah I mean there are times where once again kind of since all these discussions about security are really a balancing act where sometimes you're just gonna have to be you know for lack of a better way of putting it you're gonna be like fuck it I just need a connection to the internet Hopefully nothing will happen. And, you know, following best practices, like, oh, hey, here's this free app. Let me download it. I don't know what it does. I probably don't need it, but it seems really cool. Um, I think those are, those are the situations when one is asking for trouble. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and, and do, doing something that Young Ho is really hating. No. <laughs> I don't know if you hate it. It's an interesting it's an interesting concept to kind of be uncomfortable with like the overlap or how certain things cross over. But like I think like the most secure environments are ones that you and others build based on trust. So like let's say I know going into certain spaces, like let's say if I go visit the ACLU, I know that public Wi-Fi is public, but you know what? I know who's in charge of it. And so if like there's some anomaly or something, I'm like, all right, I'm comfortable telling Glenn, hey dude. Something was up. I don't know. Is this like by design, or is this just an anomaly, etc.? 
Um, so just like a lot of the social networks that we built, a lot of the more secure computing environments are ones that we and others build based on trust. Um, within the earlier tools, like, and what's something that we use here for, filter, for content filtering is um, OpenDNS. Um, Open DNS is a system that resolves numeric IP addresses to kind of alphanumeric names. So instead of like me being 10.6.18.55, I could be like Ken Montenegro is here, dot whatever. So that's what DNS does. Open DNS um, does a lot of filtering and updating, so you can actually block certain content from networks using, using DNS instead of running a content filter, which we run a content filter here. But we, yeah, but we have a sophisticated business network here. Um, but for like the private home user, OpenDNS is kind of a good alternative because they also have a malware and a phishing um, list of things that are blocked. And so you get some degree of security by doing something like that. And you can like set your computer to connect using OpenDNS for name resolution. Um, and law enforcement has all the tools that they need. Like at the end of the day, Law enforcement has the tools they need. Corporations are immune from prosecution, generally, for like sharing or mis-sharing mis your data or misusing your data. So that's kind of like, take that as a given and kind of build on that, that it's probably, um, there's a great likelihood of disclosure, particularly if you don't take any steps to protect it. And uh, the final point is that word of mouth and traditional mm -hmm. organizing not models will never be replaced by existing or yet to be created technologies. And I know that's a, a bombastic statement because I know the new organizing institute is probably like going to put a fatwa out on me. But like the fact of the matter is that I think that there is, I have yet to see a technology that does the organizing that face-to-face um, -face requires. Like that's successful in mobilizing people. Like if you want people to click on something that's not organizing, word of mouth and like getting people together will do that. I know technology will hopefully get in the way. Though we could like have another session on scheduling tools, but that's not this session. So that's the extent of this evening's presentation. Yeah. So now we open it up to questions, we'll call it. <laughs> the thing about like if you're in a public space and you say, is there an undercover cop here, identify yourself now. And if you don't, you're violating that's yeah you know it's really funny because we're having that conversation about a town hall we're having an anti-surveillance town hall this Saturday um, stop lapdspine.org for more information <laughs> um, so the immigration advocates network um, when you sign up for their for their website to get information they actually have a checkbox that says I'm not a um, federal prosecutor I'm not an anti-immigrant um, activist. Um, like there's this, a list of criteria of like, oh, this, this is who I self-identify as. Um, and it seems to have been like successful, even though I think that there's a knowledge of, you know, if there's anything here that um, can't be shared, it can't be here. Like we can't build this repository of information and, and kind of count on people to kind of abide by I swear I'm not a federal prosecutor who's going to use whatever information is here to build a better case to deport more um, you know, people who I think have unlawful presence in this country. Um, I, don't, I don't find any of those like really binding. It's kind of like the, the email disclosures that you see all over the place, where like some of them will even cite United States code. There isn't successful prosecution of people who get misaddressed email. Like let's say, oh, you mean it's in the yeah. If you believe you receive this email in error, please destroy it immediately and format your computer, and then throw it into the e-waste recycling bin, and then poke out your eyes, and yeah, go through the process of eternal sunshine of the spotless mind or whatever. Like that, those are like I think there are some things that some things that we kind of want to have faith in that, like Santa Claus, that just don't exist. That have no legal weight. Yeah. So I don't, I think like a disclaimer like that, like all the cops in this room self-identify. I think some cops would, but as we've seen the militarization of the police, um, like in the first slide bucket, that's one of the points is as the police kind of takes a more um, um, counterinsurgency approach to fighting against social movements, 
those there's that's kind of meaningless. It's more of a charade. I think it's more of theatrics. Mm-hmm. Are there any cops in this room? Tell us now. Is I don't know. I'm I have mixed feelings about that. So you're saying that if that person is that cop is the information leader, they're not like we can't uh, charge them. Yeah, there's nothing to charge them with. But I guess as you're saying, maybe it's <clears throat> to build just to build more uh, confidence in, in the group. Uh, like, oh look, we we are in a place. Uh, <laughs> So please, like, sh- please be proactive in like talking and so forth. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that psychological, theatrical aspect is kind of important because, like, when you're when you're in those spaces, you kind of want to know where people are, and hopefully, people will. But most people will accurately self-identify. Mm-hmm. But as far as like there being a repercussion, to the best of my knowledge, I, that's that's why I equate that type of um, kind of call to the altar of "Are you a cop?" with like the email signature disclosures where we kind of put them there as a formality, but at the end of the day, do they have any legal weight or consequence? To the best of my knowledge and experience, no, they don't. Yeah. Any other questions? Fire away. Well, I'm just curious, do you use um, the, the two-step verification for email? I do. Yeah, actually, that's that's a great. You know what? That needed to be in here. So, there is uh, two-factor authentication is now available in in Google Mail and like for Google Apps, etc. And so, what you do is you plug in like a mobile phone number, and whenever you log in from a new computer, it'll send you like a five or six-digit code, being like, "Hey, enter this, enter the code that you got by text," or you could have it call you and tell you the code as well. And I'm a big fan of the two-factor authentication. Um, it's really funny because organizationally here, I tried two-factor authentication for our VPN. Cause I love two-factor authentication because it, it's like just logically it works so well. Because the idea is the first factor is something that you know. So like let's say I know my username and password. And then the second factor is usually tied to something you have like a token. It's like in 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 this scenario, it's like a cell phone, where the cell phone gets like a bing. This is the code you need to enter in 30 minutes, and you can log in. I'm I'm a big fan of using it. Yeah, I had, um, and they have backup codes, which I hadn't used once. So if you're actually separated from your cell phone, sitting in front of your computer, but your cell phone's not with you, you have a list of codes you can go to that will stand in for the, the one that you send. And you can print it, and it's perforated lines, so you know where to cut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, actually, that's that's actually an excellent recommendation. It didn't really occur to me because it's funny because I think within the scope of this presentation, I'm like, yes, I really like using Gmail, and it's where like my domain mail is hosted, our organization's mail is hosted on Gmail. Um, but yeah, I, I I kind of think like within like, particularly with um, the fluid terms of service and privacy, where I'm like, okay, if people are doing like serious like work and they're really shooting for security, do I want to send them to Gmail? But, but I mean, that's, that's a way to kind of like lock out your Gmail from like the interloper, interloper for sure. Yeah, that's a, great, that's a great point to bring up. Yeah. So, that's, so every time you're done using a service, you always log out of every service you use. And, um, uh, oh my God. and you never check the myself sign box? Oh, that's a good question. Is, is that how you manage your... Once I log into my, so on my notebook, uh-huh. I actually leave things logged in. Oh. Yeah. But your so I am not without sin. Uh-huh. Yeah. But your laptop is, so what's the point of the two, uh, oh, it's a form of stream keys. Or, or from like a new computer, if I'm logging in from a different computer. Say so somebody else gets your password and goes to a different computer uh, and tries to check your email. Actually, Facebook does that, like if you sign in on a different or, or even like online banking, it'll ask you like, do you want to verify that this, this device? Or... Yeah, well, and I, I think like, let's say, so online banking is still generally single factor because they're all relying on things that you know. It's like, let's say if, let's say hypothetically, so I haven't had a cat, so this is an excellent like scenario. So if one of my security questions is like, what color was your first cat? <laughs> 
and somebody knows that about me, like let's say an ex-partner or something like that, then it's really not two-factor. It's just like, okay, I know more. I need to know more information about you to get in, as opposed to the second factor is usually something else that's kind of independent. Though, I mean, of course, like if your phone isn't locked and someone has your phone, and it's like, okay, here's a verification code. I'm in, you know. But then it's, it's I think, generally, most people will have their token on them most of the time, most of the time. <laughs> you know, I'm sure that would work because you're just receiving digits. Young Ho? I don't have any of these um, at our organization. Uh, I manage tech, and uh, my stance was like, it's all great, but you need to know what you're doing. And if you don't know what you're doing, and people do certain steps and think they're safe, but do something stupid like the USB, or I'll tell you some stories of what happens um, with our interns. Um, I, I won't tell you right now because you'll be so distracted, sure, sure. <laughs> but, uh, but like with those things, because they don't know how to address the tools and evaluate what's going on in their computer, or in general, like how logis security logistics work, the operations, I feel like, you know, it's kind of hopeless. I mean, we could do some education, but a lot of our organizations are busy organizing, not learning security tricks. And yeah, the cops are, no, we're not at the level where the cops are gonna be spying on us. So at the most, you'll be some anti-immigrant activist kind of trying to infiltrate us. Yeah, but you've also got, you're also writing in Korean, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I, I tell, I, I tell, it's, it's kind of funny because our staff want more security than I do. So they all, they all started locking up their computers um, with some random password that they only know. And sometimes they, they, sometimes they write on a sticky note and hide under a keyboard. And that's their major security. Let me get my big magnifying glass. <laughs> And, um, and that's how they attract the children from using the computer because they feel like children are in foreign computers. But for me, as an operation person, it's very um, distracting because I like set up this big uh, form making campaign and we have like 10 volunteers right here. And like, two of the computers are locked up and I have no idea how to turn them on. And I assume that there will be. And um, I start calling people, hey, do you lock it? What's the password? Do you lock it? What's the password? And I'm like, oh, please get it off. So, yeah, I, I was wondering what you thought. So let me tell you my horror story. <laughs> that is not the horror story. No, 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 I'm already thinking, I don't know how I'm going to sleep tonight. <laughs> college intern came uh, volunteering with us, and um, we were like, hey, can you, uh, we had him volunteer a couple days doing voter registration. So he didn't know which website. So another supervisor who was not me told him, hey, you, should you can verify online whether you register or not. Okay, Google voter registration. This is Google ad um, that pops up that says, uh, check anyone's personal information, blah, blah, blah. And he clicked that. No, 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 he didn't click that. Wrote the wrong address. Uh, so instead of labeboat.net, wrote labeboat.com or something. And that directs you to this, like, find out anyone's personal information kind of website, like the personal detective. So there he wrote all these uh, voters uh, information to find them out. And the website for any entries, it says, oh, we have it. Now enroll for $10 and we give you the full information. So the interest conclusion was, oh, look, they're registered. And if you pay more money, you can find out more information. And that was done for like, I don't know how many voters, like 10, 20. So <laughs> that all went to into trap. So we are at that level of information literacy um, with a lot of our organizers. So like, how much is technology gonna help? Um, that, that's, that's my, um, well, and I, I think, like, <laughs> from my point of view, from my point of view, and I, I and I guess the dynamics are substantially different because mm -hmm. here, in in my in my personal life, mm -hmm. there, it's kind of like okay, this is kind of a an area that's reflective of my professional life, and in my professional life, I'm very fortunate to work for a well resourced organization, where they're domain controller, backup domain controller, so centralized password. Um, repository. So like, I don't care who's locked a computer, I know that I can unlock it and I can unlock it remotely and take control of that machine. And here, I mean, once again, it's, it's kind of like the privilege of, of the well-resourced, where here we have things like application control, where we can control what applications launch 
on a user's machine. Where, like, let's say, um, Jose was telling me about a machine that was out of compliance because it was running an old version of Firefox and our endpoint management or endpoint threat solution, like manager, was like, hey, that's an old version of Firefox. You can't launch that. And it would, wouldn't launch it. And I'm like, well, you know what? That's built that way for a reason. Like, we don't want people running old versions of Firefox. And we do centralized patch management, um, centralized threat mitigation. And there are, like, so many layers of security here. But I mean, that's the big difference. This is a well-resourced org. We have an IT team of 1.8 people who are actual technologists, not, like, program staff being repurposed for that. So, I mean, I wish I could speak directly to, like, that scenario. Also, system that's, like, like fail-proof. Well, I don't, I don't think that any system is fail-proof, particularly if it's a system that I design. I know that one day I'm going to, like, trip over a power cable and, like, all the RAID arrays will never be re rebuilt and <laughs> it'll be the end of the world. But, um, I mean, I don't believe that there's, like, an infallible system. But we've tried to build in um, to account for as many contingencies, and I'm a big fan of... It's really funny, because politically I believe in decentralization, but um, in terms of like the, the work that I do professionally, there's a lot of centralized administration that happens here. And that leads to kind of that degree of control is sometimes necessary for, I think, a secure environment. But people could say 